what's happening here in Australia? Sonia? Sad that it's not uncommon in Australia either. Yeah. So um, we we like I mentioned before, we are also in the top ten countries for the sheer quantities of opioid prescriptions. In 2016, we had just over 1,800 drug-induced deaths, which equates to around five per day. Now, it might sound um, a lot less than the U.S. that have, you know, 115 to 145, but remember that their population is 13 times bigger than ours. Welcome to episode 28 of the Obson Guiney Crick Care Podcast. Hi everyone, um, this week I have invited uh, Sonia Ting, a colleague of mine who's an anaesthetist and a pain specialist uh, to join us on the Hi show. Hi Roger. Um, how are you Sonia? Thanks for coming along. And no um, I thought I'd ask uh, Sonia to um, have a bit of a discussion with us about um, the opioid epidemic. So this is a phrase that's, um, I think it's used mainly in North America, isn't it? And, that's uh, If anyone's been paying attention... Uh, to Donald Trump and uh, any of the media in North America, there's a lot of talk about the opioid epidemic. There is. There's a lot of buzz. It's a good uh, thing. So um, I thought I'll get your uh, take on what's happening over there, Sonia, because I know you guys in the pain world have, have probably heard heard a lot about it. And, yeah. um, and then maybe what's, what's also happening here in Australia, because we are a, a similar country to America in many ways, medically and um, economically. So... Um, what that's is what is the op- but <laughs> that's, that's medically, yeah. well, we certainly use same the same prescription opioid. But we're both first world countries. That's right, and, and we do use prescription opioid medications. We do use a lot of prescription opioids. Um, there are probably some similarities uh, uh, and some differences too. So let's yeah. um, let's have a discussion. So, okay. So, firstly, uh, I'd like to say I don't think the word epidemic is an exaggeration. I think this is a major epidemic, epidemic, and I've got some frightening numbers. Yep. So North America and the U.S. in particular is the number one country for sheer numbers of opioid prescri- um, prescriptions being given out and opioids being um, dispensed. Canada is number two. Australia is in the top ten. Um, they're also, I think, number one for the number of opioids that are unused and, you know, you know, quote unquote, wasted and floating around in the yep. community that need to be disposed of. The um, the opioids epidemic refers to the death toll as a result of uh, drug overdoses uh, and opioids, whether accidental or intentional. The vast majority of opioid overdoses leading to death are actually accidental, so we can yep. view those as preventable. The yep. intentional overdoses they may be harder to prevent because people that are intentionally overdosing might do it with other substances or in other ways. So um, the numbers, uh, the frightening thing is the number of people dying from opioid-related deaths and accidental deaths are increasing. So 10, 20 years ago, um, uh, the numbers were, you know, less than 100, less than 50. In 2016, nearly 64,000 people died of drug overdoses. Over 40,000 uh, of these were linked to opioids. Is this in the US? Or? In, the, in the United States of right. America. So there was 100 people died? In, per day. Per, per day. day, okay. So in 2017, estimates range from 115 to 145 people per day dying of opioid-related 
overdoses. Yeah, and so I've heard that that's that's more than people dying from. Um, that's more than the trauma. death toll from guns, from car crashes, from HIV, from AIDS, and those that's things right. often get more publicity. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a higher death toll than all the U.S. military casualties in Vietnam and Iraq wars combined. Yep. So this is a and major are, epidemic. And these are these are people who still have uh, long periods of their life left. You know, this, not, this is killing young people. The, the right, classic, yeah. the classic patient dying of this is someone who's or person, is is a male in their forties now, thirties, forties, fifties. So these these are young people with plenty of life left to live. Yeah. And so it's not surprising that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services have declared a public health emergency. That was last year, and they've come up with a five-point plan, which we can discuss a little bit later, and debate about. Sounds good. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I can talk a little bit about what's happening here in Australia as well. Yep. Well, actually, it's not I've, just something scary that's happening over there. I'm just going to jump in here because I did write, I did spend a little bit of time googling um, some famous celebrities who died from okay. opioids recently, and yes. I know, and I, I don't want to think that all that time's gone to waste. So, um, so some of the really uh, ones that uh, probably um, our listeners and uh, every, everyone who's um, on planet Earth have heard of, you know, Prince. Fentanyl. Mm, and uh, the interesting thing I found was, you know, he's not actually a um, the sort of classic person that you'd expect because he um, he was apparently a very sort of clean living person. He was a vegetarian. Mm. He eschewed alcohol and uh, drugs and um, mm. that sort of lifestyle. But he was using um, prescription opioids because he had lots of problems with uh, pain from um, orthopedic surgery in his hips. Mm. And then uh, so that you know that's. Um, you know, this is very relevant to it's what we're going to talk about. It's not rock and roll That's style right. So, you know, I think a lot of people overdose. think, oh, these guys are rock and roll. They, you know, mm. no wonder they're dying. Mm. But this is relevant to sort of the patients that we look after and it's relevant to what we do every day. Absolutely. And then um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, he, he was using prescription opioids then, heroin, so maybe that's a bit different. Mm-hmm. Heath Ledger died. Uh, one of the two of the, the medications the he took was yep. oxycodone and hydrocodone were yep. found along with benzodiazepines. Yep. And then Tom Petty as well when they... Um, looked at his, um, uh, you know, analysed his blood after uh, the place more than fentanyl and oxycodone. Mm. So, right, so, yep. So Yeah, it's it's taking it's taking a lot of people and famous people are not excluded. Yep. In fact, they may be at and increased you know, risk. Everyone, everyone thinks about these fa- celebrities, but what about all these other people that we know that um, everyone, yeah, everyone's touched, uh, their lives have been touched by, you know, someone who's probably died of a opioid-related um death and uh, mm. it's such a common event in North America. What's happening here in Australia? Sonia? Sad that it's not uncommon in Australia either. Yeah. So um, we, we, like I mentioned before, we are also in the top 10 countries for the sheer quantities of opioid prescriptions. In 2016, we had just over 1,800 drug-induced deaths, which equates to around five per day. Now, it might sound um, a lot less than the US that have, you know, 115 to 145, but remember that their population is 13 times bigger than ours so so how does that compare on a sort of per capita number are we sort of in the same ballpark as them per per thousand people? no we're not we're not there yet no not there, no, okay. no but it's no. definitely a lot worse than it used to, uh, it's it a is lot much it worse it is much worse so um all, any any all the data that's looked into um number of opioid related deaths opioid related prescriptions um over the last sort of decade or or two decades show a significant increase. So I do have some numbers into this. Um, There is a UNSW study um, over 10 years from 99 to 2009 looking at the number of codeine-related deaths and the rate was up by two and a half times from three and a half to nine per million. Um, Most of these, again, were accidental deaths, although one-third were deemed intentional. 
Um, for every codeine-related deaths, there were two other deaths also related to opioids or Schedule 8 medication prescription. So not necessarily street drugs, but drugs that were getting prescribed by medical professionals. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got some data over 20 years from 92 to 2012. Our opioid dispensing from pharmacies in general have increased by about 15-fold. Wow. Yeah, fifteenfold, and that's in Australia. One five, fifteen in Australia, yeah. and 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 it's been reflected in the people who are dying. So the demographics of those at risk of opioid-related deaths is actually changing. So back in the nineties, people, the majority of people sort of um, dying from from opioids was the younger population, people in their twenties, thirties, using street heroin or street yeah. morphine. Now, twenty years later, it's actually you know middle-aged, forty-year-old, fifty-year-old males some of them functioning, working. They usually live outside a capital city and they're using prescription opioids. The main culprits are oxycodone. Fentanyl is is increasing and heroin is now creeping back into the market to meet demand. Yep. Um, and it's often mixed with something else like benzodiazepines. And my understanding is that a lot of people um, who are starting to use heroin now are people who were on prescription opioids but have had trouble accessing that. So they've that's, been driven towards that's, um, that seems to be that, that that's what a lot of people believe who are who was who are looking into into this epidemic, and um, when we look at the number of uh, of the, the the amount of fentanyl and heroin that's being consumed, it's increased significantly in the last five years or so. And that would so fit, when you, that would tie when you, in with that. Yeah. So when you're talking about fentanyl here in Australia, is this people getting fentanyl patches? Because I know that um, uh, that's I'm just thinking as an outpatient. That would be the so only it's actually t- sort of... increased on the street. So the right, black okay. market for heroin and fentanyl have really so increased. So similar to in North America. So years. people are actually shooting mm, up. This uh, is a fentanyl. much bigger problem in North America than it is in Australia. Yeah. However, in Australia there is a there is a huge black market for fentanyl. It's a very okay. clean synthetic opioid. It's very this, easy to leach out is of this a people, patch. Um, you know, fiddling around with patches and getting the fentanyl out of the patches, or is this coming in manufactured from overseas? You know, I don't know what proportion each one um, contributes, but it would be much easier to get fentanyl from a discarded patch or an unused patch than it would be to try and risk sneaking it in from overseas at the airport. Right. Well, um, so the next thing I guess is. Um, so what's what's been you know it sounds like a fifteen fold increase in the last um, yeah yeah twenty three years what have been the main causes or drivers for this uh, so um, Sonia uh, okay so look I believe it's happening mainly at the the primary care level just because of the sheer number of presentations with pain there we know um, from looking into it in Australia in the last couple of years nearly three quarters of patients presenting to any GP reporting any kind of pain will leave with an opioid prescription. Now, whether this is appropriate or not, it's hard to decide, but that seems like a large number of patients yep. to be leaving with opioids. And why have GPs um, changed their um, approach? Do you think there's some underlying causes there? Or? Absolutely. So yep. I think that one of, the, one of the main causes was an aggressive marketing campaign that sort of emerged in the mid-1990s. Uh, and this in turn was developed in response to rising awareness of, of chronic pain and the public health burden of chronic pain. Um, over the last couple of generations, we're now living longer than ever. Yep. Our organs, our joints and our nerves have to survive seven or eight decades. A few generations ago, you know, we had much shorter life expectancies. Um, and the rate of chronic pain we know starts to rise significantly after the age of 65. So the, 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 
the public expectation was, you know, we need to respond in, and, and treat this pain. Yeah. And maybe 20 years ago, there wasn't as much knowledge around and uh, around how we treat chronic pain and how we manage it. Opioids, um, at the same time, uh, large drug companies that were developing opioids sort of jumped on that bag and wagon and, and, and started aggressively pushing their medications, in particular things like oxycodone, as, a, as an appropriate treatment for chronic pain. And, and this sort of came hand in hand. Yep. So I can, I just want to jump in. So I can remember when I was, uh, you know, starting out uh, in the early 2000s, being told, you know, be pretty liberal with oxycodone and things mm. when people have acute pain. If you give lots of, um, if people have acute pain, there's no downside to giving them, uh, to, to, to treating it fairly aggressively with um, opioid medication. Um, Which we now know is not true. Yeah, so, you know, I think we were all a little bit, um, we were all sort of um, bamboozled or, or gullible, I suppose, in some respects, and believed that message. Yeah, so and it's look, just, and hasn't look, turned out to be the case, though, has when, it? When you look into it, you know, it might be easy in retrospect to say, oh, how could how could we have done that? How, how could how were people so easily bamboozled when you look into how this marketing was done i mean it wasn't done in a foolish or you know transparent way it was it was very you know um cleverly done so they they targeted uh physicians on multiple levels so you yep. know and poured millions and millions of dollars into this billion dollar industry so they had a lot of resources that you know your average doctor just doesn't have access to um, their slogan was marketed by sub subjectively more attractive sales representatives and their major slogans were things like millions of people are in pain and we have the solution. They had these aggressive TV marketing who, campaigns who, who to the public. Who doesn't want to help their patients, you know? So Correct. It's, it's a very, sedu Correct. very seductive message to very try and believe. Very seductive. Yeah. They very cleverly spent most of their time targeting general practitioners and primary care you know, physicians who, who are the first line in starting opioids and continuing opioids yep. and not specialists. Um, and you know, they, were, they targeted the public as well and totally changed public expectations when they're going to their doctors. So you know, when you see this beautifully marketed advertisement with, with real pain patients saying that they were in terrible pain and now they're, they're, you know, they, don't, they no longer have pain and can live life, it's very hard to, to then see that and then go to your GP and be told, no, you can't have this treatment. That's you'll, right. you'll, so you'll tricky, hunt until so you can find it. Societal so, pressures and uh, yeah, big pharma pressures, and marketing pressures on, on the GPs. Patient expectations were huge. Yeah. And um, another thing that they also discovered were doctors are naturally suspicious of drug companies and um, representatives, but they're not suspicious of other doctors. So a lot of money were, you know, poured into research that were funded and pay, paid, and some of these were quite respectable, respectable, respected doctors in the field. Um, and the funded publications eventually supported the, uh, their medications and it, that filtered down to everyday prescribing. So what's happened? When did the penny drop and the um, advice change? Because now we've um, we've basically flipped the coin. And, so I think it's uh, taken a couple of decades. That this, that this is really not yep. what we did back, uh, has was not good, mm. and that they are addictive, mm. and we've got to, we've, now we've all got to put a bit of a handbrake on it. But it's hard once the wagon's moving to mm. slow it down again mm. and uh, change change perception. Because um, and I think unfortunately we had to learn by experience. Yeah. So it's taken a couple of decades. And it's taken a couple of decades to start seeing the start recognizing um, the impact and the epidemic and the number of deaths that not just the death toll but also the long-term impacts of opioids. So we probably don't have 
the time or the scope to go into them, but you know things like immunosuppression, increased rate of cancers, osteoporosis, early osteoporosis, early dementia, these kind of things GPs are seeing and realising that you know it's a major problem. Yep. <clears throat> and I guess one of the other things we're just um, chucking there is it's, it's hard, isn't it, because opioids are such good painkillers and, right. uh, yeah, and they really useful. do work. Mm. Uh, but the problem is it's... I, I like to think of uh, like steroids, like uh, corticosteroids, like prednisolone. You give someone a couple of days of prednisolone for, say, uh, something that's immune-related or inf- 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 inflammation. It's, it works amazingly well, and so it's quite seductive. But then, uh, you know, if someone's on a prednisolone for two years, then all sorts of bad stuff happens. So that's same right. with opioids, isn't it? That's right, um, that's right. It's a, it's a quick fix. Someone comes in, they're sore, you give them something, and it really does work. Yeah, um, useful for acute you know pain, it, less useful for chronic pain. Two years later, you're like, how did we get in this situation? Mm. Well, so let's, shall, we, um, shall we talk about some practical advice about how, um, how we can apply this sort of uh, new paradigm uh, uh, in some of the ho- patients we see in hospital and, and obstetrics and gynecology? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I thought we would leave like managing a patient who comes through theatre with chronic pain and chronic opioid use to another yep. to another do you have all day because that, that's huge <laughs> but what can we do say we have patients who come in um i, I was going to like maybe base this uh, practical advice around a hypothetical patient who's who's not on any analgesics but sort of has a few alarm bells ringing that they might be at risk of becoming mm. uh you know uh uh on long-term opioids if we're not careful so mm. let's say for example a young woman with um pelvic pain coming into into hospital for a, some sort of um, operation like a laparoscopy mm-hmm. you know, removal of some cyst that they've seen on a scan or, mm-hmm. or maybe even just a diagnostic laparoscopy mm-hmm. uh, for endometriosis but has all the sort of uh, classic sort of alarm bells like they have anxiety disorder they have um, maybe a history of substance disu- uh, disorder use mm-hmm. like maybe smoking or alcohol or something like that mm-hmm. um, and depression and things like that so they're a bit of um a bit of a worry yeah. uh, what how can we manage them in hospital and uh not sort of look back six months later and go oh my god they're on um you know quite high doses of targin um uh, and, and whereas they come into hospital not on not on an opioid and whereas six months later after an operation and lots of pain after the after the operation and then end up in a bit of a mess yeah, and then end up in your clinics on you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so it's in it's in your best interest to give us give us some advice how advice. we can avoid that sort of downward spiral. Yeah, so there's, there's two parts properly. to this question really. There's there's managing this woman's pain well in the perioperative period. Yep. And then how do we prevent her from becoming a long term opioid user when she's got like you say some clear risk factors for a substance use disorder? And uh, I think. First of all, recognizing someone who's at, at risk is crucial. Yep. And it's something that maybe isn't always done by everybody in the hospital. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I would refer people to something quick and easy like the opioid risk tool, which is commonly used by pain physicians. Is that online? Or we can it is online and I can talk about we'll, it briefly. I'll put a link to that on the show notes for anyone who's listening. Yeah, yeah. So it's a quick sort of five or six point um, risk factor screening tool it, it you know you can you can count the number of points someone you know and, and, and stratify them into low uh, moderate or high risk of uh, opioid substance abuse yep um, and, and it includes all the things sort of that you've talked about so um, so, so age a young person 
is more at risk, someone aged 16 to 45. Um, someone with a personal history of substance use, so yep. that includes sort of tobacco, alcohol, benzos, other sort of addictive substances. A family history of substance abuse, and whether this is there is a genetic component, but there's also that learned social component. Yep. Um, um, history of mental health disease, so depression, anxiety are top, but you know, also things like schizophrenia. Um, personality disorders are a little bit more controversial um and and yeah and a history personal history of abuse so there's a few things that sort of do ring the alarm bells and if you see all these in one person which sounds like this patient that you this theoretical patient patient, yeah is 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 has at least a moderate risk yeah um so recognizing this and recognizing she's at higher risk of pain because she's had pre-op pain means that this person ideally should be flagged before the operation. So ideally they should be seen before by an anaesthetist who is going to recognise that risk and going to pay a bit more attention to a um, multimodal pain management plan. Yep. Now, now as, so imagine I am the anaesthetist, uh, Sonia, and you give me some advice. What's, um, so we can talk about like, the pharmacology of uh, of what drugs analgesic drugs we can use during and and in the first couple of days after the surgery. But what sort of cognitive things uh, or psychological um, approach should we be using? You know, like, oh, should I be counselling this patient and explaining to her what the what to expect and what not to expect, i.e., as in how what pain she should expect and what sort of pain relief. Because I think that's, that's one of the keys. Managing isn't it? patient expectations. Yeah. So how would you phrase it? Because this is this one I'm trying to pick your brains. You know, give us some advice about how we should explain to them okay. that they're not going to end up on opioids and not to expect to be pain free, etc. Or yeah. completely pain free. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I would, you know, depending on the situation. If I had a lot of time, I would sit the patient down. Um, you know, establish rapport with them, find out more about their story and their history. That trust that they have with you um, is really important when you're trying to get a strong message across, I so think. The, and so these aren't really patients so you want to see on the day. They're, they're no, like sort it's of not ones someone be, you want to rush with. They'd it's be not better coming to a pre-admission You want to be they? too paternalistic with. It's not yep. like they don't usually respond well to that, you know. I don't yep. think many people do. No, I don't think anyone does. So, yeah, right. <laughs> So, you know, establishing a good relationship and some, some form of rapport is really important, I think. Otherwise, you're not really going to get your message across. Um, and the message that I'd want to get across to them is they, they do have chronic pain. They do have some risk factors. Um, some of the things we have no control over, like her age or the fact that she's female, some of the things we do have control over. So those are the things we're going to concentrate on. Yep. So making sure her pain is well controlled preoperatively making sure anxiety and depression are well controlled and that may include seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist being on appropriate medications serotonergic medications for example yep. can also help you, in so the treatment you, of chronic pain do you think we should be doing a bit of screening uh, for depression anxiety if they haven't i think ideally these um, people should be picked up weeks before when yep. their operations are booked yeah often so whose role do you think before. that is um so i think it's the role of the person it? who is booking the surgery or procedure to then flag this person um, as a higher risk for post-operative pain and yep. possibly higher risk for all these other complications, opioid use, et cetera, et cetera, and um, refer them to the appropriate person. And so should, you, should we be asking them to be um, reviewed by one of our psychology or psycho, psychiatry 
colleagues if we think if we're worried they're depressed or have a serious if, anxiety disorder? Or do you if, ask them if a few we're worried that they have a ser- yeah a serious anxiety or de- how, how do you depress- sort of quickly depressive s- disorder that's not well controlled? How do you quickly screen for that in the in the pre-admission or a, or an outpatient setting as a, as a non? So there's a number of sort of screening questionnaires that you yeah. can use. Um, I'm happy to sort of look up a couple of simple ones and and you know yeah. the ones that we use in. In clinic might be a little bit too extensive to be used as a quick screen. Yeah, so I guess in, when they when they meet you in the p- chronic pain or the pelvic pain clinic, yep. there's more time for that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I was just thinking uh, maybe there's some. But a very simple depression screening tools. Ask them how yep. is your mood. Yeah, well, how do you see the future and things like yeah. that? Yeah. Well, how is your mood? Do yep. you enjoy things in life? Those are two very quick screening tools that yeah, you can use. Sure. And Has if you see any alarm bells, then maybe yeah, refer the, them on. Then maybe yeah. 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 Refer them on. Um, but more importantly, like you say, managing their expectations. So telling them, look, this this is an operation. There will be some pain, but these are the things that we're going to do yep. to reduce your pain. If they have already had some um, experience with opioids, they'll probably bring that up themselves. If they don't, I do normally bring that up um, during the consult. So I'll say, look, there are a whole class of drugs that are related to morphine, that are cousins to morphine. And we will use some of them during the operation when you're asleep. We might use it afterwards to help you get on top of your pain for the first couple of days. But they're not safe to be used long term. And we wouldn't expect that you would need them long term because we will be using all this other good stuff. Okay. That's really good. I think that's all you need to say really, isn't it? Um, Mm. um, I guess it gets a bit trickier if they then um, have different expectations for the clash. So but a lot of the time they've put, a they, the time they haven't actually formed a discussion. that. They haven't yeah. actually formed that expectation. That's right. Yeah. So that's good. So then the next thing I was going to ask, and I know you've probably got other things you want to talk about too, but mm. but no, that's let's fine. say for example, so they have their surgery, they have a um, laparoscopic removal of uh, a cyst or something, and they end up, they're up on the ward, and they you get a call as as a junior anaesthetist or maybe uh, someone holding the, the acute pain service page, you get called to see them. In the first 24, 48 hours after their surgery, and they've they were written up for some sort of PRN opioid, and they've used the maximum amount, and the nurse looking after them is, is exasperated. Mm-hmm. So, despite our sort of counselling, they, they they keep asking the nurse for more more oxycodone mm-hmm. or more buprenorphine or whatever opioid you use in your in your institution. So this is how are we going to diffuse this? this. Yeah. yeah. So, so this is a more that. sort of management of acute pain post surgical patient, yeah, yeah. and and I think we do need to step back and sort of. Um, not just focused on the fact this is a high, sort of high-risk chronic pain patient um, that, that, that is at risk of substance use, but also think she's just had an operation, has something gone wrong? You know, do, do, does she need um, a review? Has anyone actually looked at her abdomen? Does she need yep. a surgical review? Is so one of the things, well, let's just assume because we're talking about pain that we don't have any um, serious pathology. She's just really anxious and catastrophizing a bit about mm. her pain. Mm. Um, sometimes I've seen some of my colleagues or even um, surgical colleagues you know go add, add up how much oxycodone they've had in the last 24 hours and then start them on a slow release preparation so I think how, how do you feel about that I, I know I have strong feelings that, that I that's maybe not a not, safe thing to do that's not what I would do yeah because that's we, not what I would recommend yeah because that could definitely end up being continued long term couldn't it absolutely and, uh, inadvertently we have caused a real serious problem for this woman yeah absolutely so I, I, I then I, I would then you know, approach the patient, find out what you can about the source of her distress because it's often pain is 
an expression of some other kind of distress. There's yep. often something else underlying. There's often some other fear, anxiety, or social stressor that is has a far greater impact on their mood than yep. their you know than their expression of pain. So it's sort of magnifying so, the pain. They've absolutely, got, and yeah. Sort of and they're using the opioid it. as a bit of a crutch to try and. Yeah, and and you've got to ask yourself if they've used this much opioid and they're still in severe pain, is it a good therapy for them? Yeah. Given its risks. Good. So. Right. Yeah, that is definitely not what I would do. <laughs> go back to basics. <laughs> go yeah. back to multimodal. Go back to using other. I, stuff. I sort of when I see these patients, I'm thinking right. Where are we going to be in a week if I, based on what I what I do now, uh, mm. and I think to myself, mm. you know, some poor GP is going to have this this patient rock up when their script runs out mm. uh, in a week's time, and mm-hmm. they, you know, two weeks ago they went on opioids and now they're on high dose, and now they're rocked up and said, oh, I'm on uh, 20 milligrams of Targin BD after my operation. Mm-hmm. Can I have some more, please? Uh, you know, and I'd be pretty grumpy if I was that GP. <laughs> and they deal with it all the time. So, right, <laughs> that's um, true. We're sort of nearing the half now, mate. This has been a really useful discussion. I think there's mm-hmm. probably um, uh, lots of other things we could pick your brains about, but sure. I think this is just a good. In- uh, this is a really good introduction, and maybe we should um, uh, uh, stop it here and um, sure. talk about some other. Um, I think there's just a couple of practical things that I yep. like points that I wanted to talk about. Um, so you know, I would refer people to the U.S. Department of Health and. S- Human services have come up with a strategy to deal with the opioid epidemic. That's right. But, well, we were going to talk about but in practical yeah. terms, in practical terms, what we can do, you know, on a daily basis, one, identify these patients at risks. Risk. Be thinking about it. Have it in your brain. Number two, maximise your non-opioid therapies and change our mi- mindset about non-opioid therapies. I, I've and even non-drug techniques. I've met plenty of doctors that yep. just totally discard paracetamol or things like mindfulness or meditation. There's evidence that those things are more effective in chronic pain than opioids are. So don't ignore them is all, all, all I'm saying. And um, education is, is key, um, particularly if you're a key player, if you're a GP, a surgeon, an anaesthetist, um, um, you know, or supportive, supporting um, you know, roles like nurses and pharmacists and everybody else that's involved in the care of someone and delivering opioids to a patient. Um, and remain cynical about new opioids that claim to be miracle drugs because yep. it happens nearly every time a new opioid becomes introduced. It's so. a good, um, it's, it's the perfect um, thing to sell, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Um, so actually, and that just reminds me, so, you know, your comment about um, mindfulness and co- uh, cognitive strategies, I'm, I'm becoming a big believer in them. I think that's a really um, a great strategy. But there was a great um, article in the New York Times that we were going to mention that we yeah. just beforehand weren't they do you want to tell us about that or tell the listeners about that and um sonia sure well, you, this you is have, actually you, one you I had heard, a read through it yeah, i told you about from it, you yeah. but i heard it from another podcast which um which i'll send everyone give everyone a link to as well sure okay so this is a very entertaining article i think it was published in 2016 and it's written from the personal point of view of a woman who an that was American actually woman, earlier this year i think oh well, was it, I it, was, it, was, uh, was it the end of last year like oh December. I, i'm perhaps thinking of the one about purdue um about uh, oxycodone yeah, that no, was this... written in October 2017. Okay, this is the one about... Were you talking about the one about the green tea? Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, so that was that was only about six months, months ago. months ago, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, so it was written by an American woman who travelled to Europe and I think Germany to have her laparoscopic hysterectomy. Well, she was living over there with her husband who, right. worked, who was working over there. So I think she was there for a few years with her husband who was work, uh, Which is why she had her surgery Germany. there. Yes, yeah. But she came with a mindset and expectations of an American 
person. That's right. So um, it is a very amusing article about the way she walked in with her expectations, which were essentially to have high dose opioids on discharge <laughs> and be able to, I think in her own words, to knock title? her out. <laughs> what was the title? I wanted um, Vicodin and all they gave me was green tea. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> And uh, she had a very rational explanation from the surgeon and the anaesthetist. And what was great was they all had a very united front. They all believed the same thing. They all were telling her the same message, which is, which is crucial, I think, if you want to get a point across. Um, and as a team, they told her, this is what we would do to manage your pain, and you would be getting it as an inpatient, but not on discharge. And, the, and they suggested that she pick out her favourite tea <laughs> <laughs> and let her body rest and let her body heal. And she did that, and she described her healing process, she described her recovery, and she, and she recovered well. Yeah, and I think she actually drank more than just green tea. She had a few different types. Peppermint. But, but um, it is quite entertaining, <laughs> and she, she acknowledges that she was uncomfortable for a, for a, for a few days, but it didn't sound like it was severe. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really an um, interesting and well-written article. So yeah, uh, I'll, I'll actually Very put a link to that as well. I think it was like I Googled it and, and read it for free, so I don't think it's, um, it's uh, accessible something that you, need a, you don't need a subscription to read it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay. Okay. Right. Thanks very much, Sonia. That's Thanks been for a having very entertaining, me. A great overview of a, uh, uh, of a, what is a very important topic. Okay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandguidingcritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to interesting videos related to the topic that you just listened to. See you again next time.